Welcome to Current Radio's Politics Station. Please enjoy today's selection of political news. Well, Abby, let's shift gears and discuss the implications of former President Donald Trump's recent claims of unchecked presidential power. Indeed, Michael. Trump's assertion of immunity from laws and precedents due to his former presidential status is causing quite a stir. It's not just about his past term, but also the potential for a future one. Right. And with some polls showing him leading President Biden in swing states, we're facing significant constitutional questions about the limits of presidential power. The 2024 election could be a turning point in American history. Trump's concept of an untamable presidency is certainly a cause for concern. He has already stated he'd use a second term for personal retribution against his political foes. This could risk undermining the principle that presidents do not hold monarchical power. Let's talk about the recent ruling by U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin. She rejected Trump's power grab last week, stating his four-year service as commander-in-chief did not bestow on him the divine right of kings to evade the criminal accountability that governs his fellow citizens. Trump is expected to appeal this decision to the Supreme Court. Yes, the idea that every American, including presidents, is equal under the law is a cornerstone of the U.S. legal and political system, but it's one Trump consistently seeks to overturn. His repeated attempts to defy this principle are clearly evident in his responses to the various criminal trials he faces. And it's not just about legal matters. Trump's rhetoric paints efforts to hold him accountable for his attempts to undermine the 2020 election as a ploy by the Biden administration to cheat in the 2024 election. It's a classic case of accusing an adversary of the transgressions of which he himself is guilty. And unfortunately, this tactic resonates with many of his supporters, despite the lack of evidence supporting his claims. It's quite a paradox, isn't it? Trump, who tried to disrupt the long-standing tradition of peaceful transfers of power, is now positioning himself as a defender of democracy. The effectiveness of his ability to manufacture false realities is truly alarming. It's also worth noting the reluctance of Trump's GOP opponents to confront his anti-democratic rhetoric. They seem to be more concerned about alienating GOP voters who sympathize with Trump's claims than defending democratic principles. This is a worrying trend that could potentially scare away moderate voters in swing states. And then there's Liz Cheney, who has criticized Trump and paid a hefty price politically. She warns of a sleepwalking into dictatorship if Trump is reelected for a second term, given the extent to which Republicans in Congress have been co-opted. This is a stark contrast to the views of Trump's allies like Lindsey Graham, who believe Cheney's criticisms are driven by personal animosity towards Trump. It's clear that Trump's vision of a second term would have few, if any, guardrails. His legal arguments are a warning of what could come. But as we've seen in Judge Chutkin's ruling, his arguments are not convincing judges. It's a battle between legal principles and political maneuvering. It's a battle that will undoubtedly shape the future of American democracy. The question is, will the constitutional premise of U.S. governance withstand the test, or will we see a shift towards unchecked presidential power? Only time will tell. From the battle over presidential power in the United States, we now shift our attention to another form of power struggle. This time, it's in South America, 
where past actions of a former president are once again in the spotlight. This story involves not just politics, but also serious allegations of human rights violations. A complex and deeply rooted issue in Peru is resurfacing, Abby. Law students from the Universidad Nacional de San Antonio Abad del Cusco are reporting on this. It involves the former Peruvian president Alberto Fujimori and some serious human rights violations. Yes, Michael. The case revolves around two incidents that occurred in the early 90s, one in Barrios Altos and the other in La Cantuta. Both involved the Grupo Colina Death Squad, with Fujimori being accused of sponsoring these atrocities. Initially, the Peruvian government issued amnesty laws, effectively covering these crimes with impunity. Exactly, Abby. The Inter-American Court of Human Rights later ruled that Peru violated the American Convention on Human Rights by enacting these amnesty laws. They ordered Peru to investigate and punish those responsible for these human rights violations. Fujimori was found guilty in 2009 and sentenced to 25 years in prison. But in a surprising turn of events, Fujimori was pardoned in 2017 during the term of former President Pedro Pablo Kuczynski. This decision was later declared inapplicable by Peru's Supreme Court, but the Constitutional Court approved habeas corpus for Fujimori in 2022, effectively freeing him from prison. The Inter-American Court stepped in again, ordering Peru to refrain from executing that sentence of the Constitutional Court. This meant Fujimori was supposed to continue his sentence, but the Constitutional Court of Peru seems to be pushing back. They issued a new resolution in November, referring the proceedings to the enforcement judge of habeas corpus to proceed in accordance with its powers. Right, Michael. This move was seen as an attempt to disregard the mandate established by the Inter-American Court of Human Rights and uphold their ruling from March 2022. The current president of the Constitutional Court, Francisco Morales Saravia, even stated that their rulings must be complied with and enforced, essentially affirming Fujimori's pardon. In response, the Inter-American Court demanded a report from the Peruvian state about the execution of its resolution. This tug-of-war between the two courts seems to be escalating, with the Peruvian courts seemingly prioritizing political benefits over human rights. It's a troubling situation, Michael. It not only risks returning to a state of impunity for the crimes in Barrios Altos and La Cantuta, but it also undermines the authority of the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. This could set a dangerous precedent for future human rights cases. Absolutely, Abby. We'll continue to monitor this situation and provide updates as they become available. It's a critical moment for Peru and for the international human rights community. From the complexities of the Peruvian legal system, we now turn our attention to the shifting sands of British politics. There are whispers of a significant change on the horizon in the UK, with a wave of conservative MPs reportedly considering stepping down. Let's delve into this. Abby, it seems like we're seeing a shift in the political landscape in the UK. A number of conservative MPs are reportedly planning to step down. What do you make of this? Yes, Michael, it's a significant development. It appears some MPs are privately admitting they won't be seeking re-election, and more announcements are expected in the new year. And this isn't just a handful of MPs. Some are predicting a larger wave of departures than before the 1997 general election, when Tony Blair swept into power. Exactly, Michael. 
Already, the number of departing MPs this cycle has surpassed figures from several previous elections. The Telegraph's sources suggest that the scale of this shift could be quite significant, right? And it's not just backbenchers. There's speculation that even cabinet ministers with slim majorities might choose to bow out. That's true. Seats held by Jeremy Hunt, Alex Chalk, Gillian Keegan, and Lucy Fraser are all on opposition party target lists. However, Hunt has categorically rejected speculation that he might stand down. Interesting. Now, some might argue these resignations are due to shorter parliamentary careers nowadays. But others point to the Tories' poor performance in opinion polls as a key factor. Indeed, Michael. The latest opinion poll averages show Labour leading by about 20 percentage points. If this trend continues, we could see a significant shift in the House of Commons. Right. And there's a sense of uncertainty among Tory MPs. Some have already decided to quit, while others are still weighing their options. This Christmas break will likely be a time of reflection for many. Absolutely, Michael. We'll have to wait and see what the new year brings. But one thing is clear. The UK's political landscape could be in for a major shakeup. From the shifting political landscape in the UK, we now turn our attention across the pond to the United States. Specifically, we'll focus on New York, where there's a dedicated office making significant strides in disability rights and representation. Let's explore how this office is not only providing crucial resources, but also shaping the future for New Yorkers with disabilities. Abby, it's clear that New York's chief disability officer, Kimberly Hill Ridley, is doing some important work in her role. She's been in office for nearly two years now, and... Indeed, Michael. And this office is a lifeline for New Yorkers with disabilities, especially those with physical or sensory disorders. They're connecting people to resources like employment, housing, and emergency preparation. Absolutely, it's a crucial role. And it's not just about providing resources, but also about representation. Hill Ridley herself is in a wheelchair and has over 25 years of disability advocacy experience. She's living the reality of disability every day. That brings a level of understanding and empathy to her work that's hard to match. That's a great point, Michael. And it's interesting to note that this office was created within the governor's office under a new law. It's an indication of how seriously New York is taking the issue of disability rights and representation. Indeed. And it's not just about the present. Hill Ridley and her team are looking ahead, planning for next year and beyond. They're focused on improving housing, transportation, and healthcare access for disabled New Yorkers. And let's not forget the workforce shortage. Hill Ridley acknowledges that it's a significant issue and one that will take time to address, but she's committed to taking those baby steps to tackle it. Right, Abby. And it's not just about filling vacancies. The aim is to increase wages and improve staffing conditions for those who work with people with disabilities. There's a push for a 3.2% cost of living adjustment pay increase for workers and a $4,000 salary boost for direct support professionals. Yes, and it's clear there's widespread agreement on this. Advocates, lawmakers, and people like Kevin Horrigan from the nonprofit People's Inc. are all calling for these changes. They see it as essential to recruiting and retaining employees. And it's not just about pay, is it, Abby? There's also talk of expanding the ombudsman program to provide oversight of caregivers for people with developmental disabilities and creating a staffing plan for workforce emergencies. That's right, Michael. 
It's a comprehensive approach, and it's clear that this is a pressing issue. Providers have an average 17% vacancy rate across the state and a turnover rate of 30%. There's a real need for action here. Absolutely, Abby. And as we look to the future, there's a lot more to be done. But with people like Hill Ridley at the helm, there's hope for progress.